3: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, bubble battle amid more calls that stocks are dangerously overvalued. Why one of the biggest fund managers on Wall Street says... It's just not the case. You'll hear from him on the program today. The Investment Committee also here to debate the state of your money. Joining me for the hour, Investment Committee members Josh Brown, Joe Terranova, John DeJerry, and Tiffany McGee is the CIO. And CIO at uh, Pivotal Advisors, Liz Young, BNY Mellon's Director of Market Strategy. Let's take a look at stocks pacing for their fifth positive week in six. Record highs for the Dow S&P, NASDAQ earlier, although you can see the Dow's fallen back negative all of this coming is summer warning about valuations. So, guys, you got Bank of America today says their sentiment indicator now closest to the sell signal since the global financial crisis. Wolf Research today says, yeah, we got a bubble. It's concentrated in the Nasdaq 100. They expect it to inflate even further. Ultimately, quote, our sense remains that this is all going to end badly. All right, John. So you think a correction is getting closer? <laughs>
4: Yeah, I do, Scott. And um, uh, I don't know that it ends badly, though. I disagree with Wolf. I just think that this is natural. You've heard all of us on this show talk about how often we do get these corrections. Is this the beginning of one? Perhaps. There have been some phenomenal numbers. These aren't just against weak comps. These are phenomenal numbers like that Netflix number yesterday, Scott. That was just amazing. Uh, So, I don't think that the story's over and that the markets are broken and that it has to end badly, whatever that means. I do think, though, that having some protection is a good idea. Um, For instance, back to that Netflix, I took off all of my Netflix stock, but I'm still in Netflix call spreads. I've just replaced a 500, nearly $600 stock, Scott, with $20 call spreads that have a lot less risk and allow me to participate um, without saying, oh, I'm out, you know, I called the top or anything. I didn't do that. I instead just pulled all that cash and that gives me dry powder to buy other things if indeed we do get that correction shot.
3: Sure, but, but you did reduce your risk in shares of Netflix. You may have re- re- replaced it uh, through the options market, but you still dramatically reduced your risk. And that to me says, sort of matches maybe your overall view of where we stand, right?
4: Right. I mean, basically, I took off about $6 million worth of Netflix stock, Scott. Unfortunately, of course, I have to pay taxes on the part of that that is outside of my non-taxable. But nonetheless, um, by carrying it into this year and seeing that big pop, I don't owe those taxes till 2022. And then I replaced that with a several hundred thousand dollar investment in call spreads, like I say, Um, I want that dry powder to be able to commit to stocks if we get the correction. And if we don't, I still have participation in one of these stories of 2020 and I think 2021, which are these streaming services.
3: So, Joe, this idea of reducing risk, you're thinking about it, too, based on the notes that I've read of yours.
2: From a trading perspective, yeah, I am. Um, You know, looking at valuations and questioning if we're in a bubble that makes me think about well how is it exactly that I'm investing and I don't see a bubble for investing because if there is any form of a bubble it's in the negative yielding debt and in treasuries themselves and that money is going to come out of treasuries and it's going to come into the equity market now from a trading perspective I think yes you have to look at the positions that you're holding and if you have been allocating with the belief that the type of return that you've enjoyed over the last sixty days you're going to annualize that over 2021, then you definitely have too much risk on the table and you need to be pulling it back. The earnings report and the commentary from United Airlines was an absolute sobering reminder that we have a long road still ahead. And I think the way that the market is trading today, the breadth, the breakdown of energy, the breakdown of REITs, the breakdown of a lot of cyclicals and consumer finance, And even the S&P 500 itself, which is slightly higher, 70% of the stocks in the S&P 500 are lower today. The NASDAQ 100, the NASDAQ composite, twice as many losers as winners. So what today is all about, it's about Apple, it's about Microsoft, it's about their weighting in the index. And I've been talking about equal weighted strategies, so I look like a fool right now. But from a trading perspective, I'd be looking at DocuSign, I'd look at uh, Tractor Supply, As names that potentially I would be looking to move to the sidelines and even Capital One, which is a consumer finance name that I've done well in, if I need to take off risk in the cyclical moment, those are the places that I would look at. But overall, from an investing perspective, I do not see a
3: bubble. Well, I mean, United, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it does raise questions about the reopen and the recovery trade. Liz Young. So you've got Jeremy Grantham, the famed value investor on CNBC Asia earlier today said, and we've talked about a note that he wrote recently that really underscored the point that he made actually on television today. He says the market's in a bubble with, quote, very seldom seen levels of investor euphoria. Here's what Jim Chanos, the famed short seller, told me yesterday right here on CNBC during the inauguration
5: a lot of the,
2: uh, the reopening plays that, that, as I said, people have been buying hand over fist since, uh, since June, really, when the, the first glimmers of the vaccine being available in the fall came out, um, you know, they're, they're back to way above where they were in 2019 in terms of total market cap. So, so they have completely erased the vaccine's effect and are looking forward to, to big up numbers, whether it's in travel or, uh, or, or leisure or whatever, ha- what have you. Um, And then on top of that, the stay at home stocks are still doing relatively well, too. So the market is uh, the market
3: is having uh, both its cake and eating it, too. Okay, Liz Young, what do you think?
1: I think first and foremost, valuation is a bad timing mechanism because it can not make sense for a really long time. So if you use that as your only decision factor, you're probably going to end up disappointed and frustrated secondly i don't disagree that there are parts of the market particularly some of those big tech names that are a little frothy but that doesn't make the rest of growth and the rest of tech guilty by association there's still opportunity in some of those smaller cap tech names things like tech services and tech related companies like fintech that will only grow going forward now to his point about the reopening trade and some of those stocks being back above where they were in 2019 I don't think that that's a terrible thing because earnings are expected to be above where they were in 2019 this year. And you also have to remember the market is looking out six to nine months and we're expecting, at least on our side, we're expecting GDP to get back to where it was by about the third quarter of this year. That's just the recovery to back where we started. Then the real growth begins, and that's where you see even further growth in that cyclical trade, and you need tech to produce more growth. So I think there's opportunity here. I know that the valuations are high, but I don't think anybody needs to get out of it.
3: Okay, so you just said something very interesting that made me sort of you know, th- think about the, the next question I wanted to ask, and that was the statement you just made about you know, earnings are expected to be, right? A lot of things are expected to be. The vaccine is expected to be in a lot of people's arms at some point this year. We are expected to be out and traveling again and doing all of those things that we were doing pre-pandemic. And we were expected to be, Josh, getting back to some form of normal, consuming, spending money, getting out, working, stimulating, things like that. We have a lot to live up to. The market, to Jim Chanos's point, is pricing in an awful lot. An awful lot has to go well in 2021, doesn't it?
6: So to to um, to Jimmy's point, you know, you are seeing a lot of the reopening stocks trading at or above where they were prior to the pandemic. But I've explained this already, which is that a lot of these companies have taken advantage of ultra-low um, financing options, have shored up their balance sheets, have refinanced debt, and as a result, they will emerge from this crisis stronger. And in some cases, uh, investors are rewarding them from that. They've also spent the last year digitally transforming their businesses for the future. And Shake Shack's a really great example of that. The stock made a new record high. It's above where it was prior to the pandemic. They did not sit for the last 11 months saying, Oh gee, it would be so nice if people would come and sit down at one of our tables and eat french fries. They spent the last year building shack tracks and setting them up setting themselves up for a future of app ordering, etc and delivery and now... They can have their cake and eat it, too, because when you get a reopening, all those high traffic areas around their locations will see a return of uh, business people working during the day and or tourism. Plus, they'll have the benefits of all these digital uh, investments they've made. And it's not just my one stupid little burger stock. Think about thousands of companies that have been forced to do this, very large companies like Target and Walmart, accelerating the pace of what they would have done Uh, in terms of being ready for a digital future. So I think the market is reflecting the fact that um, the catastrophe also turned into an opportunity and money got much cheaper, so the earnings power will be there. I want to point this out, it's very important. 66% of companies last quarter raised guidance for this year. Typically, that number is 33%. So we've had a doubling in the number of companies giving increased guidance for Q1, which is the quarter we're about to see reports for. Um, And it's not uh, shocking to see valuations where they are when you understand the fact that 90% of the S&P 500's assets are uh, non-hard assets. They're intangibles. They're things like customer data and brand value and network effects. That's 90% of the assets in the S&P 500. In the 1970s, that was 17%. Most of the assets in the S&P 40, 50 years ago, were like literally cement plants and piles of iron. The entire economy is transformed, but we're using price earnings ratio as though it's relevant. So when you hear these bubble calls, understand they've been going on for the last 20 years, and most of it is old men in bow ties who are experts on a previous version of the world that does not now exist. Things have changed radically, and I could find you articles from 2016 where people were saying, oh, the market's 20% overvalued, because the P.E. was 16, and the prior 10 years, the average P.E. was 14. Well, if that was your signal to exit stocks, you missed a triple in the NASDAQ, a double in the S&P 500, who are you listening to? So I think people should not make decisions on valuation. They should make decisions on their own financial plan to decide whether or not they're going to lighten up in stocks and let the markets do what they will do. You have no control over it. And we don't know how stocks will be valued six months from now, a year from now. Look,
3: even 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 some of those who are saying, yes, this is a bubble are not saying get out of the market today. And that's part of the wolf. No, great. Is so so it's So it's conversation. (laughs) Look, Alan Greenspan. When Alan Greenspan said irrational exuberance, and everyone else is stupid. If you would have gotten out of the market when Alan Greenspan said irrational exuberance, you would have missed four years worth of gains in the Nasdaq before it blew up. Okay, Wolf Research is saying we expect the bubble to inflate even further. It's just they think ultimately it's going to end badly. And we're not only talking about TIF. um, You know these reopen and recovery stocks. Just look at growth stocks year to date. Some some of the, the the big names and many of which you own. Wayfair, you own it. It's up 33% year-to-date, okay? We're 21 days into the year. DoorDash is up 29% year-to-date. You own it. TeleDoc is up 22% year-to-date. You own that. Tesla's up 20%. You own that. Fastly is up 20%. You own that. You own DocuSign, which is up 15%. So you've been riding some really, really nice gains. The question is, are you starting to yeah, wonder maybe. about whether... You need to take some off the table.
0: Um, well, first of all, I'm excited that I made some good calls, <laughs> number one. Um, but number two, you know, we're we're I talk about this all the time. And, you know, getting to Joshua's back to Josh's point about this conversation around making decisions solely based on valuation. Um, I've been talking about this for, you know, uh, on on the show since I've been on. You cannot make decisions solely on uh, solely based on valuation. Um, given the time that we're in. Right. So I don't think we're in a bubble. Um, You know, what I think that we're in is a new world and we have to be brave. And so part of being brave is sticking to a disciplined plan. Right. So having a, a set asset allocation, that means that, you know, you rebalance when things get out of whack. I think sometimes we tend to we tend to talk about the things that we like on the show and not necessarily focus on the overall plan. So that's that's one. But number two, you know, really understanding that the world has changed. um, And some of these companies are uniquely positioned to take advantage of opportunities. And so I get back to my tech companies, my tech adjacent companies and my tech enabler companies that I've talked about so many times. Um, And, you know, we've experienced this kind of digital transformation in the past year that, you know, customers are have, have now adopted getting everything online. Um, you know, we're, we're connected in a way that um, that that we weren't before, not just to our devices, but also to each other and to um, the companies that we buy things from. So this is just a different world. And you can't talk about, you know, simply about valuations and not talk about the fact that the entire world has changed. I understand. And it will never go back. I, I understand. Exactly
3: I, I understand. But mm-hmm. I I would take issue with a little bit of that. I mean, OK. I I get why DoorDash has been up, for example, but to say things are never going to go back. You don't think on the other side of the the same place, but you don't think on the other side of the pandemic, you know, food delivery businesses may do a little less business because people want to go out and actually see human beings and eat in the friendly confines of their favorite restaurant and not order delivery because they have no choice.
0: I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we're not going to get back to the levels that we were pre 2020, pre COVID. And so, you know, when you ask me if these companies, you know, basically what you're asking me is if these companies still have room to grow. And I think that they do. And you know, it's really, it's not a question of whether they're going to go down after we reopen. I think that they have staying power. Like I've said it before, I'm not a trader. I'm a long-term investor and I don't invest in companies that I don't, that, that I believe won't have a future. So yeah, we're going to see some volatility and we might see a little bit of, you know, bumpiness as the world gets back to, um, you know, a, an environment where we're not really uh, uh, you know locked in. But I do think that you can't, um, you really can't ignore the factor that people, you know, necessarily weren't always ordering their groceries online in January of 2020, right? They weren't necessarily, um, you, you know, uh, um, ordering cleaning products and things online. But now that it's so much easier to, now that they know how to do it, and it's so much easier, why would I go to the grocery store to buy toilet paper? I don't need to.
3: Yeah, that's fine. But they need you to order more things and more frequently, um, To keep up with the gains that those stocks have already had. Let's do this. Let's bring in our headliner today. He manages $2.7 trillion as CIO of BlackRock's global fixed income and the head of global allocation team, Rick Reeder, joining us once again. Rick, welcome back. It's nice to see you. Happy New Year.
7: Thanks, Scott. You too.
3: So, I I mean, I do think it's a question. Thank you. I do think it's a question of the moment, you know, because so many different people are are opining on whether stocks are are way ahead of themselves, overvalued. If we've got pockets and bubbles that we need to be worried about. You say in part of your your notes today that these soothsayers of doom, as you call them, we're in Mm -hmm. another 2000 tech bubble. But again, we would suggest otherwise.
7: So we're not. Listen, Scott, I mean, if you go back, I. I, Well, first of all, I'd like to rewind what Josh said, the, uh, and Tiffany and, and John. The There is, so do you think about, it, people don't look at valuations across asset classes and put into, put into place the contacts that we're operating in. Savings has grown $3 trillion in the last year. Uh, the investment dollars, the money market funds and commercial bank deposits is now at $20 trillion. People have to put money to work. Let me, t- let me talk about, you know, we have to put some money to work in fixed income. We've gotten a hundred billion of fixed of, of credit supply, of investment grade credit supply this month. A hundred billion, a third of it's at under one percent. We're financing companies at fifty basis points. In many cases, if you think about, you know, what is a bubble? Gosh, financing companies at fifty basis points so that they can do MA, do CapEx, do R and D, et cetera. Boy, I, you know, If you think about five years from now, if you have companies that are building equity at 10% per annum or 15% or a number of the companies that you all have been talking about are generating ROE significantly higher than that. Where are you going to be in five years owning that investment-grade company and taking the interest rate risk of it? But that is a direct injection of value into these companies. When you talk about earnings yield and free cash flow yield to the equity market of over 4% in an economy that is I – mean, look at the data that we got today – with an economy that is, that is growing and is going to pick up momentum. We could talk about where travel and leisure is today. But if you think about where we're going and you think about where the consumer is, we're going to have a strong economy and you've got, you've got the best asset class in the world. is the equity market. And quite frankly, there, it's not just that there is no other alternative. You're financing these companies at incredibly attractive rates, and that gets right into the equity.
3: But, I mean, at some point, does, doesn't it
7: end badly or, or not? So, it's, so so let's think about what's going to happen in the interim. I mean, so what? And, uh, I think I think Josh described it. There, I think Joe described it. Companies are terming their debt out, so they're creating a dynamics that they're not necessarily living on this drug for the for the next couple of years. They're terming their debt out, so that that ends up being in, in a pretty good spot. I think the big challenge is going to be at some point. When you get employment moving, and I do think it will start moving. You look at the last employment report. People say, gosh, it was soft. There was 500,000 jobs lost in leisure, uh, drinking establishments. Those things are going to come back. But you get employment moving, you get the economy moving, I think you could see you're going to see well into the sixes of GDP this year, and I think you could see a seven. Now the Fed's got to think about how do I taper back? that are buying 80 billion of treasuries a month I'm I 40 billion of mortgages. Do I need to keep buying at that size? You know, markets can react to that. You know, think about the last taper tantrum. I think the Fed needs to lay out. Here's how we're going to start to reduce from epic uh, accommodative policy to just uh, just easy policy. And that's always going to be that, by, by the way, that's not a today. That's not a January 21 uh, issue. But at some point, you got to be really hesitant. I thought your point about Greenspan was was dead on. At some point, We got to start to think about that evolution and how they do when the discount rate escalates. Gosh, what do I do with my risk assets? But we're just not there yet.
3: But I I wonder, I mean, you say it's not a January 2021 issue, obviously, right? I think everybody, Mm -hmm. everybody, I mean, that's not going to happen. Everybody agrees with you. But I think the market assumes that it's not a 2021 issue at all. And that if there is a taper, there's going to be one hell of a tantrum.
7: So I would say a couple of things to that end. First of all, I think this Fed has learned a tremendous amount. I think central banks globally have learned a tremendous amount from the taper tantrum, and you know, frankly I think the markets overdid that in terms of interpreting what Chair Bernanke was saying. But I think that the central banks have learned that how do you how do you start to remove this accommodation? You've got to be incredibly deliberate about it and flexible, meaning. When I start to reduce, I'm going to leave open the door that if the economy stumbles, I'm going to start to pull it back, or i.e. I will start to to be more accommodative. So there are ways to do it. And I think, like I said, I think we've learned from history there's a way not to do it. And uh, anyway, I think they'll be pretty elegant about it. By the way, I'm not saying the equity market can't pull back. And quite frankly, I'm hoping, as many people are, that you get a pullback in the equity. I'm not saying you can't pull back temporarily. But boy, when I look across the landscape and look at these yield levels, or the earnings yield or quite frankly in a lot of places you know looking of financials you've been adding some financials not a tremendous amount but adding some financials gosh you look at the dividend yield and then i could trade options around it sell calls against my position you can create a lot of income in that market in a stable sector and, and by the way or i could buy their buy their corporate bonds at 50 basis points 80 basis points I know. I think that savings that's out there, liquidity is out there, will find what is the most efficient mechanism. And today, that's equities.
3: All right. So, so you think that growth is going to be great, six, 7% you could do on, on GDP. You, mm-hmm. you say the economy's flush, right? Con, uh, supporting high levels of consumption, right? People have saved a lot. Mm-hmm. We're ready to get out. We're ready to spend a lot of money. You don't think we're in another 2000 tech bubble. But then why have mm-hmm. you taken your cash level? <laughs> much higher than it was before. What's the message in that? Is that a looking for and expecting a correction and then wanting to pounce on that? Or is it something more?
7: You guys do a lot of do, do some pretty good diligence on our portfolio. So what, what are we doing? We're running much more of a barbell today. So think about portfolio allocation. Think about how you run your portfolios. Last year we ran a lot of interest rate risk. You had the Fed that was that was easing aggressively. Interest rates were A a great hedge. B, you were playing alongside of they're going to drop interest rates, they're going to purchase a lot of assets today. That interest rate exposure is not interesting at all. In fact, you know, a better way to dull some of the beta, dull some of the risk in the portfolio is run more of a barbell, sit in more cash. By the way, it allows you to be opportunistic around situations that manifest themselves. Run more cash run more and I, and I and uh i think it was uh, john who said it you can actually use some of the because volatilities come down you could use some of the options market to get some of that upside exposure in uh with with the lower volatility take off some of that exposure run a higher level of cash own some yield in the portfolio but get out of you know the high quality assets i talked about investment grade credit in the front end of the yield curve not interesting agency mortgages not interesting munis today I mean, how much money are we going to make on munis at at 50, 60 basis points? So hold it in cash, be opportunistic, and dull some of the risks you have in the portfolio that way.
3: Hmm. I'm glad you noticed we do our homework around here. We we appreciate (laughs) that. Liz Liz Young has a question for you.
1: Hi, Rick. I want to go back to something you said about the Fed and, and the tapering plans Let's imagine a scenario where corporate taxes are raised at some point this year, at least a proposal of corporate taxes being raised. And let's imagine that that puts pressure on the equity market. Does that then push out the Fed's ability to taper even if the economy is doing okay?
7: Uh, That's a great question. So. So I'd say a couple of things about that. A, I do think, you know, we model this and we look at how much taxes could increase. And you look at some of the sectors, obviously technology, some of the financials, some of the managed scarce places. So you've got to factor into your free cash flow model, your earnings model. You've got to factor in. We are going to have higher taxes, corporate taxes, unequivocally. So anyway, I think you've got to measure that. But, I, you know, I would say one thing about you know all the years of of watching the Fed and interpreting the Fed this FUD and, and uh, generally every Fed is laser focused on employment and improving the dynamic around around what's happening to the employment paradigm today to get to maximum employment. How do we get the unemployment rate back under five percent? And I think that is and it, you know along as long as inflation is not moving tangibly higher and, it, and it's moving a bit higher today, but there, a lot of that is near term exogenous impacts that are driving that. But I think they're laser focused on that to the extent that higher taxes. Does does cause some slowdown in companies' ability to hire, et cetera. That would factor into the equation. Boy, I really think, you know, I think, uh, you know, I always think markets spend too much time thinking about that, how the Fed watches markets. I think the Fed is really aggressively tuned into employment and going to do everything to get to maximum employment. By the way, so is the new secretary of the Treasury. And so is so is the new administration.
3: What are equities going to return this year, do you think?
7: So I think you could still get a you know an eight to twelve percent return in equities, but I boy I, I'd, you know I uh, listen I think the I think the uh, the tail risk is higher. Uh, but like I say, not to say you can't pull back first, but I think I think the tail risk is we're going to have higher returns in equities. You know, like like we've had the last couple of years. You know, when you had incredible monetary stimulus. Probably not, but, but we, I still think there's upside. And by the way, I think Liz said it and others have said it. There's some stocks that are already too high, that don't generate free cash flow, don't have any real uh, or trade at multiples of revenues that are not, sus- that are not sustainable. Um, but I think by and large, I think you'll get a good return which, which on equities.
3: One, which ones are those?
7: I'm not supposed to say that on that. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I think some of the software companies that I think have, have been identified. Uh, not as long as on the show, but I think some of the software companies have gotten aggressively valued. Uh, not all of them, I actually. Still like software. I, by the way, I don't think semiconductors that have had an incredible run. I don't think they're overvalued. I think there's more room. I think that's the new form of commerce, uh, or I should say, of, of, uh, of how manufacturing uh, commercial activity works. But uh, but you know, I think there are parts of software that that make my head spin around uh, where people think these companies are going. That's that is the most uh, most aggressive place. I, you know, by the way, I wouldn't disagree with some of the reopening story and some of those names that uh, that, you know, may take a bit longer for those businesses to come back as well.
3: That was pretty good. I mean, that's one of those like I really shouldn't say it. But then you say the whole thing. Uh, no, I didn't say the name. I can't say the names. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to get you uh, get you into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, anytime we have you on, you manage so much money. Um, you have a great view of, of, you know, all sides of the markets, if you will. Josh Brown Let's has it. a question for you, Rick.
6: Hey, Rick, one of the things that we talk about with clients and, you know, clearly U.S. stocks, nobody would say they're cheap like as an asset class because it's dominated by the S&P 500. And even within the S&P 500, it's really the S&P 50 that matters the most. And these are intellectual property rooted stories that have high valuations. So we know the 22 uh, times earnings is not historically cheap. But look around the world. The U.S. stocks are only 55% of uh, global market cap. The other 45%, uh, MSCI Europe, is up a total of 37% since 2007. Um, Japan is up about 1% a year back to 1990. So, I don't know, 30 years of 1% annual return. Are those bubbles? Uh, Emerging markets averaging 3% uh, annual returns going back to 2007 versus the S&P 9%. Is that a bubble? So I think there are plenty of opportunities, even within equities. Your portfolio doesn't have to be S&P 500. And let's hope it's not very expensive. Um, I, isn't that a reasonable stance to take if you're talking <clears throat> about a 30,
7: 40 year runway into retirement? hundred percent. I said I, I would replay what you said before as well. Uh, yes. Yeah, so so I think you got to break down Europe, though, and think about Gosh, you know, we, we, we've we been putting some money into Europe. There are not a huge number of exciting companies in Europe. I think some of the financials have gotten pretty reasonable on a price-to-tangible book. <clears throat> I think some of the manufacturing companies in a cyclical updraft with China growing in, in Germany are pretty interesting. The DAX generally is an interesting interesting call. By the way, I think Japan has had a pretty good run recently, although I would argue there there are some uh, valuations in Japan are attractive. And, and as you said, you know, EM – you know I would say EM is an uneven growth paradigm across parts of EM but there are some interesting places in Mexico and Indonesia, parts of Brazil that there's some opportunity. I totally agree. I mean our global allocation fund, you know we have we have some decent exposure outside outside the u s Listen, I still think the core of the investment opportunity is in the u s because I think we're going to grow faster. China's also going to grow uh, going to continue to grow. but I, so I think that you know where we find the best companies, most of the good companies tend to be in the u s. And uh, but you're right. There are other parts of the world. You shouldn't just sit in the U.S. And by the way, having some exposure Mm non-dollar when we're issuing as much debt as we have is also, I think, an elegant strategy. More
3: next time. We uh, will leave it there for now. Rick Reeder, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thanks Uh, for having me. Yeah, you bet. That's BlackRock's Rick Reeder joining us up next. The Investment Committee's latest buys and sells. There are many. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half after this.
2: Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more.
8: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The FBI is now offering $75,000 for information about the people responsible for suspected pipe bombs found outside the Republican and Democratic Party headquarters on the day of the Capitol Hill riots. In Atlantic City, New Jersey, the implosion of a casino built by former President Trump has now been pushed back to February 17th. Also, an auction to trigger the detonation has been replaced out of safety concerns. People will now be able to bid on hotel rooms and prime spots to view the implosion. The single winning ticket in last night's $731 million Powerball drawing was sold in Maryland's Allegheny County. It is the sixth largest lottery prize in U.S. history. And a sad note, in upstate New York, a special procession honoring the three National Guard soldiers who died in a helicopter crash last night. Officials say it happened during a routine training mission. You are up to date. That's the news update. Scott, I'll send it back to you.
3: All right, Sue. Thank you, Sue Herrera. All right. Let's talk about some of the moves you guys are making. Uh, Tiffany, we come to you first. New investment in the ARC ETF. Gotten a lot of play on this network lately. You know, Kathy Wood, a lot of people are talking about that. Why, Why ARC?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, she's a rock star. Um, and so it, it's right in line with our overall investment thesis. You know, I, I say all the time that we invest in um, innovation and strong management. And um, we like these kind of like tech adjacent ideas and companies that are kind of utilizing, um, harnessing the power of, of technology to do their business more efficiently. And so that's exactly what, what um, this fund does. So we like it. We think it's a, a great way to kind of get exposure uh, for some of our clients to get kind of broad exposure to, to the ideas that we like.
3: What about Hannon Armstrong? I'm not sure we've talked about that company ever on this program. Maybe we have. Um, But why that one? H-A-S-I.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a sustainable, it's really like infrastructure around clean energy and renewable energy. Um, so this is a, a big area of focus for President Biden. He actually just filed yesterday and is within a couple of hours of him being office to rejoin the Paris Accord. So we're, you know, we really are, are bullish on clean energy and um, anything kind of around climate change. Uh, so that's why Hannah and Armstrong, we think that they're really... Uh, Uh, best positioned to to take advantage of uh, an environment like this.
3: You bought more Apple. Uh, Katie Huberty had another positive note today Mm -hmm. after, you know, uh, looking, not after, but looking ahead to earnings. You bought more United Microelectronics, too. Rather than tell us about Apple, tell Mm -hmm. us about United Micro, UMC.
0: Yeah, well, you know, uh, Rick just said it, you know, <laughs> it's an area that he likes very much. And um, again, you know, the, the world is 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 really changed and we don't think that things are going to go back exactly to the way that they were before. So, um, you know, we, we do like semis and that was an area that we weren't really heavily involved in. And so we do like this company um, and we actually had it before we, we owned it before we had a small position. So we just added to it.
3: Recently. OK, got you. Thank you for that. Joe Terranova, let's go through uh, one of yours. You bought uh, Drive, the autonomous and electric. ETF.
2: Yeah, I mentioned that the other day on the show. I think that's the way you get your exposure uh, to the EV autonomous vehicle theme. Uh, Certainly if you're late in the game and you didn't participate in the rally in Tesla, you're going to get all the names that are common uh, to driving that theme forward, whether it's GM, Ford, a lot of the semis, NVIDIA, ON Semiconductor, and of course, you're going to get names like Tesla. You're even going to get names like Albemarle and Freeport-McMoran in there. So I like that ETF. It's my way to play the EV and autonomous vehicle theme.
3: All right, good stuff. Thank you. Earnings season, getting into gear, high gear next week. Rahel Solomon looking at which stocks are expected to show the biggest rebounds. Hey, Rahel.
9: Hi, Scott. So, yes, as we start to see the potential light at the end of the tunnel, Wall Street is expecting a major bounce back for earnings in 2021. So our friends at CNBC Pro... Put together a list of some of the top SP 500 stocks with the largest expected jumps. And at the top of the list, with earnings expected to grow 650% in 2021, is General Electric. Bank of America expecting a nice recovery in its aviation business and margin improvements in its power business. Also on the list, Disney. It's expected to grow its earnings nearly 200%. Capital One also making an appearance. Joe mentioned this earlier in the show. The card issuer, among the other issuers, expected to have a strong year as Analysts expect consumer spend to return due to pent-up demand. Ulta Beauty, one of the retailers on this list, is also expected to benefit from a return to normalcy, hopefully, and heightened demand. And then last but not least, Micron and Freeport. Mac Moran and Scott, this is something that we're actually already starting to see play out in the markets. Almost half of these names on the list are either energy or discretionary. Both of those sectors, the best-performing sector so far this year, up more than 12 percent for energy, although the sector is negative today, and then up nearly 6% for consumer discretionary this year, Scott. And for a deeper dive on the numbers, just head to the CNBC Pro section of our website.
3: Scott. Will do. The other thing is a lot of these companies you mentioned, they have a lot to live up to, right? Their gains uh, over the past few months are extremely solid. We'll say that. GE, Disney, uh, D.R. Horton and FCX, I mean, we're talking – huge percentage gains. Rahel, thank you so much. That's Rahel Solomon with us there. Up next, the big ETFs to watch today, but first to check on the S&P sectors. We're back right after this.
5: B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
10: Hello, all Bob Bassani here. Welcome to the ETF portion, ETF edge portion of Halftime Report. International investing off to a hot start in 2021. Asian markets are outperforming the U.S. and China is the hottest market in the world right now, up 10 percent this month alone. What's behind the rally? Let's talk to Jeremy Schwartz. He's the global head of research at WisdomTree. And Jeremy, WisdomTree has got a whole suite of international ETFs. Why do you believe international stocks have a shot at outperforming the U.S. in 2021? And what specific areas it's been underperforming the international market for a decade now?
11: Yeah, Bob, it's. Uh, they're starting to see signs of the market rotation, but there's could be a long way. To go, I mean, you look at that last decade, and the S&P 500's had a 250 percent cumulative return for 10 years, and emerging markets only 50 percent. Um, we, we there's a lot of talk on valuations. The U.S. expensive, U.S. dominating. It's not just that emerging markets are 30 percent cheaper on some of the metrics we follow, but that the long-term growth opportunities. When you look at demographics and sort of these technology trends we're talking about, sort of the new tech, new world, emerging markets have a lot to gain from that. So they have some of the best growth opportunities, some of the low valuations, underperformers. Uh, you've got a weak dollar, a new administration. Uh, you had a lot of trade anxiety with China in, under the Trump administration. We think it's going to get better. Uh, and that's going to give some relief to a lot of Asia and and these emerging markets.
10: Yeah, so it's not just the weak dollar we're dealing with here. So China's the leading market performer in the world right now, up 10%, as I mentioned. Chinese tech stocks have been on fire for a couple months. Do you think China technology stocks could possibly outperform U.S. technology stocks in 2021?
11: Certainly, they've been the only thing that could beat the Nasdaq has been some of China tech. And when you think about, again, the long term growth opportunity, certainly there was tension with China. A lot of questions on that. You had the executive order banning investment in in certain tech. But you say, who can compete with U.S. tech? These China tech stars really can give them a run for their money in terms of just the technology, the innovation, innovation. and you know, being cheaper pricing because of the risks involved there, you know, if they're delivering the faster growth rates, they're priced lower. They can outperform, I think. You know, yeah. there's certainly a higher level of risk, but they they can give U.S. tech a run for their money.
10: All right, thank you very much, Jeremy. And don't miss ETF Edge today, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We continue our discussion on top picks for international ETFs with Jeremy and Brian Lake. He's the head of America's client ETF for J.P. Morgan. Tom Leiden from ETF Trends also joins us. That's ETF.
3: Edge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. Bob, thank you very much. Stay with us. John's got his unusual activity. Trades next. All right, John Najarian, unusual. What do you have for us?
4: Let's do it, Scott. Uh, Ford, we'll start with that one. Earlier this week, I talked about General Motors and the strong upside call buying in there with that Microsoft deal, Scott. Ford, we've got big buying in this one, too. 26th of February, 1250 strike calls. Bought, 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 big numbers. Stock has been moving up. It's a little over 1150 right now. Still a dollar away from that strike, but I like it. It's more than a month into the future. I'm in that trade. Second one, Viacom, Scott. V-I-A-C is, of course, the symbol. They're buying March calls here at the 50 strike. That is, of course with Viacom basically just over $45 a strike. So nice little pop this is what they're expecting by March. I bought those calls. I'll be in them about two months. Last one, we didn't get to hit the snap at the top of the show, so it became a three for Scott. Snap, S-N-A-P, calls that expire tomorrow. These are really short-dated, but they've already worked, and I'll probably be holding them into the end of the day tomorrow because of the potential that it drives to a new all-time high on these brokerage upgrades and so forth, Scott.
3: Yeah, big calls on that today. All right, Doc, thank you. We have more trades ahead as we go to break. Take a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs today, including Alphabet, Chipotle, Illumina. We're back in a couple minutes. Time now for the futures outlook. The dollar sinking today on rising inflation fears related to a massive potential stimulus package. Let's bring in Scott Nations for more on that move where he thinks it's going to go next. So what, what do you think with people now getting more concerned about inflation?
12: inflation's a huge problem. You know, inflation rate is now higher than the 10 year yield here. So that means negative real rates. That's horrible for the dollar as, as well. The ECB is going to get more hawkish. It looks like that's great for the euro, but that's also bad for the dollar. And then Scott, when you look at the dollar index chart, ever since the March high, uh, we've seen lower lows and lower highs, and all the way around, it's just bad news for the dollar. And so the way to play this is to short the dollar index futures. I want to short that June contract price. I want, would want to sell at ninety twenty. My target to the downside would be eighty nine thirty. But Scott, there's so much working against the dollar. Once this gets going in my direction, I'm going to be pretty greedy. My stop, and we're always going to trade these with a stop, $90.50. You know, so at those levels, we're risking $300 to make $900. But the dollar's really going to face some tough sledding.
3: Don't get too greedy. okay? don't get too greedy. Scott, we'll talk to you soon. Scott Nations. All right, we'll do final trades next. We'll do final trades in just a minute. John, I'm going to begin with you, though. Intel after the bell. You know, you got the management change coming. The stocks run into the number. You have
4: calls? I do, Scott, and I'm holding them into the number. Uh, and the reason is maybe they talk more about outsourcing. That's one of the hot rumors uh, and one of the reasons that we've seen other companies starting to gear up for exactly that. Uh, if that comes, I think that's a positive for Intel and the new leadership. I think that carries us and breaks us out to the upside.
3: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, look, the stock's up 27 plus percent over a month. And, and a lot of that the day that the, the management change was announced. So we, uh, we shall see. What's your final trade? John, while I've got you.
4: It's Jumia, uh, J-M-I-A. It's a technology uh, e-commerce platform for Africa.
3: Yeah. One that Weiss has talked about uh, a lot as well. Tiffany, what's your final?
0: Disney ahead of earnings for next week. I'm expecting good things.
3: Yeah. Another one with the bar really high. Right. I mean, that stock has uh, absolutely done just incredible uh, over the last quarter. Thank you for that. Liz Young.
1: U.S. Materials. I think the Build Back Better plan brings an infrastructure package that we've been waiting for.
3: Okay. Joe Terranova.
2: Take a look at PayPal, Scott. The average price target sits right where the current price is. But the last couple of days, it's getting upgrades from 250 up to 300 and nearly up to 350. I think the stock goes a lot higher.
3: I mean, it's interesting. This is another one of those, you know, great run, um, keeps going up. Analysts keep raising price targets. Joe, to, to your point, Josh Brown, interesting that you've picked the same one.
6: Yeah. Sure. Patty, what's up? You didn't, you didn't tell me. Uh, I agree with everything Joe
3: said. stock's going higher. This could be one of the largest financial <laughs> services companies in the world. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Good stuff. Thank you. Thanks for watching. The Exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
5: The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, Unlock the energy and order yours at
3: Acura.com.